You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. This call features two managers, where we dive into the uncertainty of capitalization rates on real estate, the potential outcome in telecommunications and electricity transmission due to the effects of the virus, and where we see opportunities going forward. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Hello again, this is James Baron with CASA, and we're here uh, to speak about private market alternatives for uh, Canadian investors with Mitchell Prothman from Elitis Asset Management and Chris Johnson from Crown Capital. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, James. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's start with uh, you introducing yourselves. Uh, we'll start with Chris, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there to my questions. Thanks, James. Uh, my name is Chris Johnson, President and CEO of Crown Capital Partners. Uh, Crown's a uh, mid-market specialty finance company based in Toronto and offices in Calgary. Great, thanks. Mitchell? Thanks again, James. My name is Mitchell Prothman. I am the Senior Portfolio Manager for Elitis Investment Council and Elitis Asset Management. I am the Lead Portfolio Manager for the Elitis Private REIT, Elitis Private Real Estate Limited Partnership, as well as the Mortgage Plus Fund. Elitis manages around $320 million across the traditional equity and fixed income, as well as the alternative assets being real estate, mortgage, private debt, and other. And we focus on investment advisors, retail clients, uh, building diversified portfolios. Great, thanks. Let's uh, maybe let's dig into that three hundred and twenty million. You said there actually there's public and private. What sort of mix do you have in that? And then uh, you mentioned mortgage, private debt, uh, and other. I wonder what the other is, and uh, and how that's used within the client portfolios. Sure, big percentage of our assets is in the alternative investments, specifically the hard assets, being direct real estate and mortgage. That accounts for over or half of our assets under management. Specifically, we're managing just shy of 100 million in real estate and about $85 million in mortgages. The the other alternative investments, those would be kind of the liquid alternatives. Awesome. And then for, you mentioned liquid alternatives, that's something that's near and dear to my heart because kind of worked in it for about six years until it came out early last year. Um, what, uh, are, are you using tra- the traditional offering memorandum hedge funds with, say, monthly liquidity, or are you looking at the uh, the growing area of the liquid alls, which is basically daily and o- offered to uh, to pretty much any investor? Historically, we've when we have made an investment into that asset class, it's been in the OM hedge fund format. But more recently, with the loosening of the investor rules and the liquid assets, we've tended to go with the full prospectus offerings uh, in order to gain access to that. Right. So uh, that's very good. Um, and then for Chris, for your previous loans, are they uh, are they predominantly in the, in the GTA and then you're looking at 
opportunities moving into Calgary or did you have quite a bit in Calgary already? Um, the Definitely the ones who are exposed to direct oil prices um, are, are going to get hurt quite badly. We have some energy assets, but thankfully uh, uh, natural gas is uh, prices being stable over this last month and I expect it to be stable. Uh, so that's providing a lot of the producers who have a diversified um, production, um, somewhat, somewhat some ballast. And then the, uh, the service companies, the same thing, that while we see uh, those who have had um, direct exposure to oil and only oil and, and liquids for that matter um, are going to get hurt really badly, but those who've had both natural gas and oil are going to be somewhat stabilized by that. Oh, okay. I get it. Yeah. Cause I was, when I was thinking clients, I was thinking the, the investors, which I, I gather are more national as well. Uh, and with your, um, so your borrowers, are they, what kind of companies are they? If they're not necessarily oil or oil services, is it like retail, industrial, um, financial, what, what's, what's your makeup there? Uh, well, okay. It's a diversified portfolio. Thankfully we don't have a lot in the the real discretionary spending sectors right now, uh, things like uh, tourism and retail and travel and airlines and stuff are, are not really uh, good mixes for the private debt uh, we deploy. Uh, it's more of an industrial portfolio and, uh, and a business services portfolio. So we tend to be uh, largely unaffected by what we're seeing uh, in the, at least the first pass. The, the, the question remains is, we're going through an obviously a very volatile period with just a almost a hundred percent contraction in discretionary spending, and that's going to have an immediate direct impact on the economy coming out the other side uh, when social distancing relaxes and we get back to spending money. Is what damage remains from the uh, the, the, the kind of harsh and immediate withdrawal of capital we have. That I don't think anybody has a good sense of right now, and and that's the we think we can. Our portfolio companies will sustain the first wave of uh, the economic volatility, but what comes out the second side, nobody knows. Yeah, we've been working under the assumption it might be 12 to 18 months before everybody's vaccinated and back to real normal, but uh, I guess there will be more more tests so we can see who doesn't have the virus. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a big period of uncertainty here. How, how are you dealing with that, uh, Mitchell? With uh, And real estate is kind of elongated asset. Probably a month doesn't matter as much uh, to you because you might be holding on for five or 10 or more years. Uh, how does that manifest itself in, in the uh, markets? And in, are you mostly in BC real estate or is it also national and diversified like, uh, like Chris's portfolio? We are national and diversified. So when we look at our real estate holdings within the elitist private REIT, we're around one third in BC, about 25% in Ontario, and close to 20% in the US uh, with the balance sitting uh, in cash. Uh, and uh, actually, we do have a decent exposure in Manitoba as well. As far as the real estate itself, we are invested across all different strategies that is core, core plus, value add, and opportunistic. Value add is where we would take an older apartment building, as an example, put in some capital expenditures into renovating the common areas and the unit suites themselves. And upon the natural turnover of those units, look to increase 
the rents. Opportunistic can really be summed up as development. That's pre-development where you're taking a uh, unutilized piece of land, taking it through formal rezoning and purposing, and then potentially selling it or developing the property itself. But Elitis's focus is on the residential property type. When we look at our assets, that's about 95% residential, focused on apartment buildings. So we're really looking at investing in what we believe to be one of the safest longer term asset classes in real estate. Well, especially since I guess uh, the bulk of the population is spending 95% of their time at the residences. So yeah, it's got to be, <laughs> it's got to work. Uh, how about the deal cycle? If you'd say doing a, a value add or an opportunistic uh, transaction or development, how, how long does that take from say scouting a, a piece of property or, or a location and uh, taking it through all the zoning and financing and then later on selling? Is it something that takes a few years to do or, or, is it, or are you more of a perpetual buyer? I would say one of the things that makes Elitis unique is that we partner with developers and other asset managers. So Elitis doesn't go out and buy the properties directly. We're not involved mm. on the day-to-day basis of turning these properties over. So we are underwriting the, the merits of the deal and the company that is executing on the strategy. As far as the to execute the strategy itself, it's, we're really looking at a three to five year investment time horizon. That's from when the asset is actually acquired. There is some lead up time as far as identifying the asset that, for purchase, and then it's going through the municipal permits as far as undertaking the asset or the renovation program, and then. We're really, as I mentioned, kind of using the natural turnover within the property itself, which is around 15 to 20% per year. When I say natural turnover, mm-hmm. that's tenants that are moving out uh, on their own and replacing those tenants with new tenants at market rents. So to execute that strategy, you're looking at kind of three years to get around half the building renovated. And then that's where we kind of found that there has been a sweet spot as far as leaving enough so-called kind of skin skin on the bone for a new uh, the company or individual that would come in and buy the asset to right to get additional kind of a little bit of value. And so are these always equity investments? I think you said you have a lending fund or uh, and would you have a choice between taking an equity position or or lending to uh, to a project? We have both, we have both strategies. So on the real estate side, we are investing, we are that equity investor. And then on the lending side, we do have strategies where we're actually providing that debt. Again, we're not the direct originator, underwriter and mortgage servicer. We're partnering with companies that specialize in that type of lending. Very good. And uh, Chris, how about your uh, your deal cycle or the tenor of your average uh, your average loan? Um, how how is that structured? So thinking about your duration and then how you manage the credit risk as well in these uh, deals. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying we have two strategies. One is an alternative corporate debt. What I think you're asking for, and the second is the real asset side, which is 
related to power generation and, and telecom. So I'll cover them separately. The uh, um, so I, I think if we look at this cycle like the 2008 cycle, what what you're going to see is is a complete shutdown of all activity for a month or two or three while the world determines which way it's going. And as long as it's going far down, far very quickly, nothing tends to happen. Uh, once you kind of level out and you see that um, the world's not coming to an end and people start reassessing their business, then, then you have a bunch of companies sitting around trying to figure out how we can capitalize on this market situation. Uh, a lot of our debt transactions are M&A uh, in nature, and through these cycles, the strong companies can get stronger by consolidation, and the weak companies can't survive. So we're expecting to be very busy, starting maybe in June or July, once once we kind of get through that first period I mentioned. The strategy we have on the power generation, the telecom side, uh, we're thinking that this is going to be a very strong market for power generation as companies look to save money on their utility bills and the telecommunications side is really financing the digital divide we find ourselves in where urban has urban centers have strong uh, broadband connectivity and rural centers do not that's great how do you do if you're looking at new deals um how do you do diligence without being able to get there or is it kind of like you just pencils down for the next while until you can go out and see the assets or or you just um or, or are you doing something like, like Mitchell is where you're working with another party that may already have some insight into the assets? We, well, that's an interesting question. We've never had to deal with social distancing in the past and complete restriction on travel. So I think until we can get our boots on the ground and, and hands on the assets and seeing the management teams we want to work with, uh, I don't expect anything to get done. Um, so that's that I do expect to pass far ahead of the economic clarity becoming. Uh, into picture. So it's more of a, a big, the bigger question that is how are we going to underwrite assets in light of very unclear economic future? And that is in our strategies being to focus on very successful companies uh, that are leaders in the industry and they'll get through the cycle. So you get to partner with them at a time they can create a lot of value. And, and as difficult it is to picture the whole economic cycle it's actually somewhat easier to picture how individual companies will, sur will survive and succeed in this environment well, that's awesome and and again like so what's the duration of the average say uh, uh, piece of lending that you might have in your book we typically write a four or five year note uh, with with the view that they can prepay it uh, if things change so if uh, you know, the world comes back together a lot quicker than we'd expect in four to five years, and they've executed the acquisition, or it could be high growth financing as well. Um, then our money is very prepayable, and, uh, and the senior debt, typical senior debt providers can refinance our piece of paper. Very good. And then in the actual fund that you have, is it uh, open-ended uh, and with like monthly subreds or some subscription redemption? any sort of notice or is it more like a closed end, the PE structure that you're using there? Yeah, we have a closed end fund. So our, ours is committed capital and uh, has a, a, a tenor on it. There's still an investment period and, and we can, it has some nice features where we can add more capital to that existing pool and, and increase the uh, term um, with the certain voting uh, with our limited partners. So 
it's absolutely top of mind right now is we are nearing full investment of our current uh, allocation and and we're seeing this as one of the better windows uh, to deploy money in Canadian alternative finance. So uh, we'll be looking to upsize that in the next year. And so how would you do that? Do you go through advisors or you go direct to the investors or is it is it like high net worth or is it more uh, institutional investors? Like, What's your mix? And I guess where would you like to see it go? Um, I'm not saying there's like an evolution of institutional, but is it something that uh, aspirations for that or is it more like, you know, we'll stick with this this area that we're in? Well, our roots are in institutional, um, like Crown Capital came out of Crown Life. So we very much knew how the institutional allocations worked uh, up until oh, right. very recently. We, we've, we've had a nearly 100% allocation with traditional financial institutional type of background. Uh, I Great. do see the movement changing, though, and we're, we are evaluating different structures to get more of a sort of high net worth retail investor. Um, and that's really a function of what we're seeing in the markets generally that the there's been a commoditization of investment products and mm-hmm. in, the, in the more established wealth management channels um, that the, the more unique strategies are being pushed out. And these high net worth investors are looking for the type of products that we offer. So we are looking at different delivery vehicles. It's just you have to find structures where that level investor can fit in well structurally with the more institutional investors that 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 may not there's not not necessarily a perfect match between those two yeah they both seem to have different liquidity needs but you can't necessarily put them both both together without somebody having a little bit different different deal seen um and then on the investment dealer side they have their own internal things that they'd like to see but uh that's great you have a great institutional base so that's uh I'll lead you through this. Uh, Mitchell, is yours, is it mostly high net worth or do you actually have retail investors as well uh, with Elitis or is it, um, uh, and, and is it direct or is it through advisors for your channels? Elitis actually has both channels. So Elitis was founded back in 2009. The basis of that was the private client. But last year, we actually made the initiative to launch our third-party distribution division. And right now, we're working through dealer approval for both the Elitis Private REIT and Elitis Mortgage Plus Fund. There are a couple of dealers that, for both of those funds that have approved. So it's kind of on a, on a case-by-case basis at this point in time. But the bulk of the assets, when we break it down right now, are private client. And yours, is it is it open as well? Or is it you have a closed end like, uh, like Crown does? We're actually open-ended for both of the funds. Um, there's subscriptions and redemptions on a monthly basis. But one of the unique things about... Alitas is that how is trying to find a balance between that liquidity mismatch between taking a private asset, an apartment building as an example, and putting some type of liquidity on that because to actually go out and sell that underlying asset is going to take a period of months uh, to to actually have a buyer come by, put in an offer, mm-hmm. underwrite close and before we receive the cash. So the way we manage that is by having a portfolio 
of, of liquid assets as well. So that would be cash, uh, potentially some publicly listed securities and other offerings that may provide some monthly liquidity. And then to kind of keep clients, or I shouldn't say keep clients, but to be fair to both existing unit holders and, and new unit holders, what we do is we, if clients want their money out, we'll provide that redemption on a monthly basis at a 5% discount to net asset value. But if they will give us six months notice to redeem, we'll actually redeem at the full net asset value. Oh, that's interesting. In the case of the Mortgage Plus Fund, it is just the 30 days notice, but we ask that clients be invested with us for at least six months. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I've seen that too often where you had the one month at a, at a discount and then flat money for uh, for six months. Um, what do you think of uh, some of the other like real estate funds and also lending funds that have gated and just said, listen, this is a crazy market. We don't even necessarily know what the marks are. Even in a normal market, you don't really know what the marks are for, for real estate because they are just appraisal based. But uh, right now, it could be way off. Um, what do you think of gating, or do you guys have any provisions in your offering documents for that? And what would what would it take for that to uh, to come about for for your funds? Yeah, we are familiar with a couple of firms out there that have gated for their clients, and that's. You're correct in that this is a very uncertain time. We're seeing on apartment side whether tenants are going to be able to to pay their rent. In BC here, the provincial government came out with an initiative last week to provide $500 directly to landlords to if their tenant was affected, uh, lost their job due to the COVID-19 crisis. Right. So to value that underlying asset is, is difficult if, at this point in time. It, from talking to companies in which we're invested in, there are very few, if no kind of transactions at all, kind of taking place in this current environment as everybody kind of sits back and kind of reassesses the impact that this is going to have not only on the short term, but on the long term to their specific asset, but to the asset class as well. Yeah, I guess there aren't many uh, open houses occurring right now as everyone kind of hunkers down and shelters in place. That's a sort of thing. Um, Definitely not as many as that there there were yeah, a few <laughs> weeks ago or towards the end of February. Yeah, it's quieted down significantly. And Chris, how about for your uh, for your portfolio? How do you source the deals? Is it uh, through your own contacts, or is there some sort of syndication you go through, or is it uh, uh, investment banks, or wh wh where do you get the uh, your hands on these deals that you can fund? Well, on the corporate debt side, it's a pretty large uh, funnel of different people that send us opportunities. Um, a lot of those are investment banks, but. Uh, I'd say half our deal flow in the last number of years has been just word of mouth referral of people who uh, it's it's a unique enough financing product that when you're looking for some kind of stretch debt to go make an acquisition, we're one of the companies that comes to mind. Um, we would have well over 2,000 
touch points in our database we um, that that we deal influencers not necessarily investment banks that uh, um, we keep somewhat in touch with and uh, and market to so that that keeps us somewhat top of mind when when deal opportunities are coming excellent so where are you where are you seeing opportunities now is there like it's been kind of early in the crisis and no one really wants to be jumping in when obviously the knives are still still falling but uh where, where are you starting to see opportunities or and then where where would you not be or is it pretty much just keep the boat going as as is well i think the there's there's lots of things to look at right now. Um, like there's uh, anything sort of with the stressed elements, lots of that, but that's not our investment focus. Um, I, I think some context is helpful that we're coming off a very strong senior banking cycle where for two years or possibly three years, we've had uh, the banks encroach into the more traditional secondary and, and alternative debt landscape. So, that started to show some signs of weakening in the fall as credit losses of the bank started to pick up. And now I think with this COVID situation, I think that's just strongly off. So I think the, the better question or the better kind of uh, direction here is to where are you going to see the opportunities, not where we are seeing the opportunities right now. And, and really what that is, is as the banks try to deal with uh, I think a sure certainty of an increase of risk in their portfolios. Uh, we expect them to look inside and manage their portfolio. I think I've been fairly happy and, and uh, this cycle versus 2008, the banks have, have been very supportive of their, uh, of their clientele. Uh, the, the last cycle around the global financial crisis, uh, there's the calling of loans and moving people to special loans um, that, we just haven't seen in this this turn. So, but I do I don't think that'll stop them from not writing a lot of new business. Correction, I, I do think there um, there would be pens down for a while. So, really, our goal is to pick up those deals the banks should be doing and support the successful companies in in building their balance sheets and uh, and making acquisitions. Mitchell, what's your um, what's kind of your worst case situation as this goes out? Like, what what could really kind of topple the real estate market in, uh, like you say, you're about a third BC, quarter Ontario in the U.S., and you still have cash, of course, uh, ready to go. But but what's uh, what kind of makes that investment thesis uh, a lot tougher to uh, to implement over the next uh, two to three years? I think it's really around the uncertainty as far as capitalization rates. So you may ask, what are capitalization rates? Well, a cap rate for short, is the rate of return that an investor would receive had they owned that asset and paid for it in cash. So in other words, what is the, the net rental income, so gross income, less expenses, earned on owning that property for the past year, and how much are you willing to pay for that asset? So cap rates going into, into this crisis in the multifamily space, we're averaging around 4.6% in Canada. Now, there's specific markets uh, that were much lower than that, kind of for grade A downtown quality assets. Toronto, Vancouver would kind of come to mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, we're invested across the country. We've got properties here in Victoria. We have some in Kelowna. 
those are the kind of BC properties, some in Winnipeg, uh, in Ottawa. So it's really the uncertainty around this capitalization rate. So to put it into to context, if we saw a 40 basis point or 0.4% increase in the capitalization rate going from 4.6 to 5, that really equates to about an 8% decrease in value. Now, over that wow. same time frame, you will generate that cash flow. So that's kind of where you need to build in some assumptions around vacancies and bad debts. Vacancies had been at or near historical lows in, in this environment. On average in Canada, we're sitting around 2.4%. But I think you need to take comfort in looking back for the past 50 years, so kind of back to the 1970, as Canada as a whole, the vacancy rate peaked in 1992 at 4.8%. So we're talking about an asset class that really is shelter, which is a basic uh, necessity uh, for yeah. uh, for us as humans. So yeah, there's going to be some uncertainty around what rent you can achieve for that. But vacancy uh, is at, or we're coming from a position where it has been extremely low. I think it's fair to say that that will increase, or at least bad debts will increase, both of which would impact revenue, but really the big uncertainties around that capitalization rate and what investors are willing to pay for that cash flow that that asset generates. Right on. Uh, and then Chris, what's your worst case scenario? Like what's, uh, you diversified across the country in so many different ways and with industrials and such, and seems like pretty, pretty stable businesses, but like what's, What's the Achilles heel of, of that strategy? Um, I think it might be tougher to find, but what do you think? Well, I was thinking that uh, I don't think you want to hear my worst case scenario because it means the end of our economy as we know it. Um, like if you look at... <laughs> oh, Nouriel Rubini, great. <laughs> well, it's, it's like we have the benefit of investing in some of the best companies in their sector. So if they're going out of business, then basically the economy's come to a stop. Like we have a company doing... Uh, uh, transmission distribution support for major utilities. So BC Hydro, for example, is one of the big customers. So if, if it comes to the point where BC Hydro can't afford to fix hydro poles once they fall down and replace transformers, we got a big problem. So, and I, I can keep going through the list of, of our portfolio companies. Um, the, the, probably the, the, that's the worst case scenario. It's just our portfolio becomes stabilized. I think probably the more milder problem is that we just end up with a capital structure that the investors get so concerned about where to deploy their money um, that that they don't do anything for a while. And that obviously will affect their ability to, to continuously make new investments. Um, I have the opposite opinion. I actually think these cycles tend to uh, cause people to really reflect their investment behavior. And we saw this certainly in the 2001 rollover after 9-11 that the average investor's investment theme before that time, if you remember the dot-com bubble, was uh, was kind of nutty. And we went into a period of time yeah. where we had very sober investment. And and I'm, I'm actually thinking we'll see that. I think leading up to 2020, we had investment behavior that could only be described as nutty. And we had to take a, a cold shower, so to speak, which you know, the markets have certainly taken a, a very cold shower. And, uh, and now coming out of that, we'll have very sober investment 
uh, strategies, which our business is that. So we, we, I expect us to be in a very strong position to raise funds. So basically, it has to be apocalyptic before uh, before your folks kind of run into real trouble there. Well, how do you structure something with with BC like the BC Hydro um, uh, servicing company? Like, do you um, what kind of rates do you get from them, and that, how does that work? And why why do they come to you? Like, why not just go to a bank if they have really stable income coming in? It seems like they could go to uh, a charter bank and get I don't know maybe better rates or or is there, is there what's the advantage of dealing with uh, with a private lender like you? It, that that's uh, James. That's a private company, so I won't be specific into the economics. But generally, the alternative uh, credit type of returns are in that low to mid teens is what you target. Uh, why is a company who has those quality of contracts coming to the alternative lenders is a function of the speed of growth they're undertaking. Uh, this company that was founded in BC and has a very strong bench and strength in BC has been also growing in California and. Uh, and the, the business is doubling every six to nine months, uh, given the speed of growth. Uh, oh, wow. That, that the likes of the, the the major utilities down there, Southern Cal Edison and Pacific Gas Electric, are in a bit of a problem with the electrical utility uh, grid in uh, California. And uh, and companies such as uh, our company, Rockstat, is being very a big participant in, in resolving that. Oh, wow. That's great. That's good to hear we have BC Canadian companies that are get, jumping on the opportunities. Uh, Mitchell, maybe something like if you have like a specific deal on how you guys would structure that, maybe it's a value add or development deal. How do you how do you go through the process? Like you mentioned generally the timeline, but uh, how do you find it, uh, the, the deal? And then how do you uh, how do you do your diligence, get in there and then uh, if you have to manage it at all, or is there any sort of workouts that you might have to do in, in that worst case scenario? Elitis has two types of investments, and that is one where we are the sole limited partner, the sole investor alongside the developer or general partner. And so there, we're, we're not hands-on on the day-to-day operations and construction of the development so there we've been in in this environment we've been in very close contact with those developers and so far those construction sites continue to operate as per per usual in the sense that they they still have all trades showing up on site the difficulty has been actually in getting city inspections uh, where yeah, those offices in some cases have kind of shut down. So it's been it's more been more difficult there. The quantity surveyor reports getting out to the site as far as the bank financing, verifying the work that has been done, uh, actually has been done in order to provide the next draw. So it's the difficulty has been on that side. In if sites do get shut down as they have in Quebec, well, all construction sites have a contingency within their budget. And an example is one of our projects, construction financing was at prime minus 1.75% pre-COVID-19. And in order to get that, we had to provide some tenure government 
covenant to the Canada Mortgage Housing Corp as far as rental to low to middle income families. So it's not that anybody can go out and get that low of construction loan, but with the 150 basis point cut in prime by the Bank of Canada, the construction interest rate on that project right now is sitting at 0.7%. So if we're shut down for 90 days, well, that interest is more than we, we have lots of contingency within the contingency budget for that specific project. Wow. And then you almost, you almost make a money on that. Are you, are you floored <laughs> at zero or? <laughs> yeah, I, it, uh, I was floored uh, when looking at that rate and for a construction project. That's wild. Um, and then what's your advice to, to investors? Like you have, you say, private clients and dealing through advisors. What, what would you tell them if you're looking at this last few months? Obviously, the public markets reveal a lot more very quickly. Um, what's, uh, what's kind of your, your pearls of wisdom for them as, as they go forward? I would say we're all in this together. We all need to remain focused on the long term and that one thing that is consistent among all crises is they do inevitably end and there is a recovery. So we need to position ourselves accordingly, position ourselves for that recovery and not to overreact here in the short term. Yes, there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty at the individual level. Am I going to, to keep my job? Am I going to uh, lose my job? But here, I think we've seen a global coordinated effort from both central banks and government as far as monetary and fiscal policy to, to try and keep things operational. This is going to be a very tough environment for a lot of people here in the short term, but we're trying to position ourselves accordingly to, to take advantage, yeah, to be opportunistic, come out of this. So that's looking at new properties. We're fortunate in that we do have the flexibility and this is how we designed our investment offerings to, to look at the public market. So private markets for the most part have remained relatively stable for now. And that's expected, I would expect that to be the case if this persists for a few months, but if we start looking longer, kind of over the six, nine, 12 month time frame, there is going to be repricing in real estate assets. But the public markets, depending on the property type, whether it's diversified retail or apartment, they presented a lot more opportunities. So we're actually in the process of repositioning some assets, taking advantage of that cash buffer that we had going into this to look at some of these publicly listed entities, uh, companies that are trading at 30 plus percent off their peaks of only a month ago. Thanks, that's excellent. Um... And then Chris, you've had uh, obviously years with a close-end fund. They they can't really go anywhere, but uh, but you're going to be raising. And so how how, how do you uh, how do you explain what's happening to investors and and get a, kind of get across some of the opportunity that you're seeing in uh, in your port in your portfolio potential 
portfolio um, investments. Like well, James, I, I yeah, keeping them trapped into a fund if they didn't want to be in the fund is not a good long term strategy. So yeah. I won't I won't lead with that. But in terms of uh, uh, what brought them to our business was to be diversified, have that uh, stability of the uh, fixed income we can generate through our, our lending business, uh, but also to capture opportunities like we're seeing right now. Uh, that when the markets turn and the illiquid it, the, the illiquid markets are uh, tremendously more forgiven than the liquid, the liquid markets are, um, there's there's some value in being in those asset classes. So we are absolutely staying uh, very close to our clientele, keeping them informed of what we see in the portfolio, and that uh, and and keeping everybody clear that there's going to be a lot of opportunity in this, and we're going to want to capitalize on that. Great. Well, that's great advice from both uh, Mitchell and Chris on uh, one doing a very uh, uh, targeted area of lending and another a bit more diversified. And uh, we look forward to having you guys on another podcast later on uh, later on this year. Thanks a lot for your insights. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll sign off here. Thanks, guys. Great. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me, James.